We're going to begin something new today. It's not new, but it's, it's a different direction. And really, it's not a different direction. But I'm not going to get into how it fits together because my mind likes to do those things. And, um, but what we're going to talk about today is, is requires us to see something. You understand, we've talked about vision. Most of this year, we've talked about vision. And what vision is, is vision is seeing, God's vision is seeing what God sees, seeing things the way God sees them. And most of the trouble we get into is because we're not seeing things the way God sees them. Or we see them the way He sees them, but we don't want to do it His way. And, and the greatest example of success is Jesus. And Jesus was a man, the Bible says, who only did what He saw His Father do, only said what He heard His Father said, and lived only to accomplish His Father's will. Now, a psychiatrist or a psychologist could have fun with that and say this man never developed his own personality, he never developed his own identity, he was repressed, he was all these kinds of issues, and that the reality is he's the freest man that ever walked on the face of the earth. Nothing held him back, nothing held him down, he accomplished all he was sent here to do, he was not afraid, he was not anxious, he was not troubled, he was always at peace, he was never for a loss of what to say or what to do, and yet by world standards there was something wrong with the boy because he was not his own man. He was not his own person. And we're going to look at... What we're going to do is look at perspective. There's a term out there that's called paradigm, which is the the terms in which you see the reality or the world around you. And it affects how you think. There are many people out there today that, that don't believe there's a God, and it affects how they act. It affects their moral character. It affects the way they conduct themselves because they don't believe they're ever going to have to stand before God and give an account. So just as Paul said, if there's no resurrection, then let's just you know eat, eat drink, and be merry. Let's just have a good time here because that's what governs me is I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to have to give an account of my life. There's a blessing that comes. There's rewards that come from what I'm doing. There's another world after this. There's a another life after this. There's another realm that exists, the spirit realm, and that governed how he acted. It governed how Jesus acted because their perspective was not just this life in this world. Their perspective was otherworldly. Colossians 3.1 says that if you've died with Christ, then set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. That's a perspective. That's a paradigm. Living your life not for here, but for there. It's a way of living your life, but it's based on how you see things, not just what you believe. And we're going to begin to look today at the most fundamental mistake we make, the most fundamental error we make in how we see things. And it's laying a foundation for what we're about to begin to study together, which is going to become very specific and very practical in our lives. But I think in principles... And so we're going to start with some very basic principles because I believe when we have this understanding, then it will give us the ability to make the changes that we need to make that God wants us to make so that he can bless us in the areas where we need to be blessed and can do the things he's called us to do. Having said that, we're going to go back and look at the beginning. So go with me to Genesis chapter 1. So the book of beginnings, every major principle in the Bible, every major doctrine has its roots somewhere in this book because it is the book of beginnings. And there's so much to be gained from this and this is where I really have to trust the Holy Spirit to bring out what I I woke up the other morning when we were getting ready to come back and 
Uh, we had a, a, a flight that wasn't all that early, so I figured I could sleep a little later. And I woke up at about 4.30. And my, I can tell because I was wide awake. And, and this began to roll around in me because I didn't know what I was going to talk about this morning. And this began to roll around in me, and I knew this was what it was. Um, but, but putting it into words to communicate to you is where we have to trust, and to me, is where we have to trust the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 1, of course, is a story of creation, both 1 and 2. We're going to just look at a part of it. Let's, God's created the heavens and the earth. He's created this material realm. We're going to start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. There's nothing else that he makes before here or in chapter 2 after here that it said is made in his image. Man is the only creation that God creates that's made in his image. According to our likeness, that's the first thing we're looking at. So God said, I want to make man in, in our image. Now, the reason it's plural is it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, you have three parts to you too, spirit, soul, and body. Don't think of image here as hands and ears and eyes and nose. It may include that, but I believe it's bigger than that. It's his likeness. And the thing that makes God God, there are many qualities that make him God, that separates God from all of his creation is he has a will. I don't mean a document that says what's going to happen when he dies because he's not going to die. Uh, uh, He has the power and the right to determine what he's going to do. Everything he created does not have that right. The plants don't have that right. The animals don't have that right. The only creation that he made that he gave that right, the power to decide to, was man. Because he made him in his likeness. Just follow me one step at a time here. All right. We're going to see what man did with it in a few minutes. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps. One of the things that's creeping into our society is a perversion of this, where we now worship the creatures and value their lives more than we value the life of man. So we have laws that protect the one-eye newt, whatever that is. We have laws that protect animals, and I'm, don't get the animal rights people upset. I, I, I care for animals. I love animals. Had animals. I was raised in a menagerie, basically. We had every kind of imaginal animal in our house, from armadillos to skunks. My mother loved to collect animals. So I love animals. So don't write me letters about animals. I'm talking what the Bible says. What's God's highest priority is not the animal kingdom. But we have a perversion in our society where the rights of animals have a higher place than the right of an unborn child. We have laws to protect frogs and laws that legalize the killing of human beings just because they haven't breathed on their own yet. 
That's perversion. But that's the spirit that's loose in the world today. All right. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. I won't go into that right now. He created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He gave them a responsibility. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he gave them authority. He gave them dominion. Verse 29, he said, And I've, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed so that it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given him green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw that everything he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now we go into chapter 2. The heavens and thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. On the seventh day God ended his work as he, which he had done, rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because the work was done. The Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which the Lord God had created when he made. God has ordained rest. Notice he ordained it. He sanctified rest. This is the history, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day which the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. All right. Before any plant of the tree was of the earth, uh, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, for there was no man to till the ground. God didn't create it until there was somebody to take care of it. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now let's go over to um, verse 15. Then the Lord God took... Now what he's done is he's created a place called Eden. The word means place of delight. We're learning something about what God's like here. And we're learning something about who we are in relation to God. Notice who made all this. God did. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God made this. God said, let us. God did this. God did this. This is God creating. No help. He just says it. His crown in creation, He creates as this man... And now he breathes his own breath into him. Nothing else that he created did he breathe life into. He just commanded life. But he took this pile of dirt. I get this image in my mind. I'm not telling you this is what happened. But I get this image in my mind that he's got it formed. And the word formed there means hard-pressed. The way a potter starts out creating a sculpture with clay. They take this lump of clay and they hit it. They whack it here. They bend it here. That's why men tend to be rough. It says God smacked them. (laughs) Formed them with a hard press. And then I get this image. It doesn't say he did it. I get this image that you've got this 
form of a man now that God picks him up under the armpit like this and then God goes he takes his life and expels it out of him into the face of this pile of dirt and he goes and he breathes into him the life of God nothing else he created he takes his own life and breathe it into him. Now just a little tidbit here. What happened when you were born again? God breathed in you the Holy Spirit. That word spirit in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament also means breath. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. He is the life of God. That's what made you alive unto God is His life was breathed into your dead soul and brought you alive unto God. But that's, we'll talk about that down the road. We're back now in the beginning when God made it the first time. By the way, there's three places in the Bible where you can see God's perfect will. So if you want to know what God... We talked about this before. You can't look at the world today because that's been in man's hands for 4,000 years plus. So you look at how God created it to begin with. Then we look at how God, when God sent Jesus to the earth, because He was the perfect will of God. And then we look when God recreates everything in the end. In all three of those places, you can see the perfect will of God because it's the result of God's handiwork. But everything in between is God's handiwork that we stuck our mitts into. and inject it into what we wanted. And that's what we're going to talk about. So this is God's creation. So God now has created this being that He loves. It's His crowning creation. And God now creates this special place called Eden, which is a place of delight that's filled with all kinds of beautiful flowers, beautiful plants that are designed to meet every need that He has. Every need, every delight that He has. See, religion tells you God's trying to hold things back from us. But the Bible teaches us God hasn't held anything back. The problem is what we do with it. And so God created this place of incredible delight. Some translation says, and He commanded the man to enjoy it. He placed him in this place to enjoy it. It supplied every need that He had. We just saw that there was, the water came up in the morning. It was dew, and it watered the ground for him. It all cooperated with him. It worked together with him. There was no toil. There was no challenges. There was no weeds, dandelions. The leaves didn't fall off the trees, so you had to rake them. I mean, I don't know. But everything worked together with him in harmony and blessing because we're not going to go there today. But if you go further into what happened, the curse that's on the earth is a result of the choice that man made. So God says, from this point, all this work you're going to do, you still have to do the work, but the ground's going to fight you now. And if you notice, creation fights us. If you don't believe that, just leave your car in the side yard for a few years. Watch what happens to it. Things you leave alone and don't take care of don't get better. They begin to rust and decay. That includes your own body, but we won't go there either. All right. Okay. Now that's what's happened between where we left off in chapter 2 and where we're going to begin. Verse 15. Chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it 
and keep it. So he had a job. Say job. job. It's right back in the beginning. God gave him a job. He gave him a responsibility. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. See, religion's filled with what you can't do. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. You might be able to do this on certain days, but you can't do this, you can't do that. God said, it's all here. It's here for you to enjoy. Eat freely of it. One condition. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, in the Hebrew, it, it literally reads, and then the day you eat of it, in dying, you shall die. Now, let me explain that to you, and some people get upset at this, but it's what the Bible teaches, so they can get upset if they want. There's two types of death the Bible teaches, well, there's actually three, that the Bible teaches of. There's two I'm talking about now. One's the physical death, which we're all familiar with. That's when I say somebody died, that's what we almost always think of is their body quit. But when your body quits, you don't die. Your body died. There's another type of death the Bible talks about, and that is a spiritual death where you're separated from God. God is the source of life. To be separated from the source of life is to be dead. You can, be, you can exist and be dead. There are many people out there today that exist, but spiritually they're dead. That's where you were before you were born again. When you're born again, you're born alive to God. So your real person on the inside, that spirit person, now because God's breathed into you His own breath, your spirit man becomes alive to God. That means you can now connect with Him, be in relationship with Him. Now, when this first man and woman were created, they were in perfect union with him. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What, the, what, what many authors have called paradise. Paradise just doesn't mean, you know, everything's going well. It, it refers to the relationship they had with God. So God has created them, created this place of tremendous blessing, given them a responsibility, but the ability to carry that out is more than there. All right. But there's one thing they can't do. They, there's one tree they cannot eat. They can eat of everything else. Not only eat of it, enjoy it. God wants you to enjoy your life. And we can enjoy it as long as we understand certain things. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So having told them to enjoy it, having told them to be fruitful and multiply, having told them to tend this, he says, you can eat and enjoy everything I've created of you. There's just one tree, just one, that you can't eat. And what tree is that? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe that the reason for that tree is because God did not... See, He's the Creator. The Creator knows His creation. He knows what He's designed it to do. He knows what it can do, and He knows what it can't do. My car, and I've had several of these cars, has, a, has not only a speedometer on it, but it has a tachometer. 
For those of you who don't know, a tachometer tells you how, many, how fast the engine's going. Not how fast you're going, how, fast the, how many revolutions per minute that engine's going. And on a tachometer, there's a red line somewhere. And that red line the manufacturer puts on there because the manufacturer knows the limit of how fast that engine can turn. And as you get across that red line, you are exceeding the manufacturer's specifications because the manufacturer did not design that engine to go 7,000 RPMs. They designed it to go 5,500 RPMs, revolutions per minute. So if you exceed it, you're in danger of the engine seizing up on you or blowing up on you or something bad happening to it. The manufacturer knows the limits because the manufacturer designed and built that engine. Everybody with me? Well, God's the great creator. He's a great designer. His design is so perfect so that, that our scientists measure time by the pulsating of an atom. It's that precise. And God knows the limits of the man he created. Now this man, if those of you who were here when John Brevere was here, he talked a little bit of that. He talked about the, the, the original man, we're, we're, we're going to maybe look at it today. He, he, he named every animal, every species of everything and remembered them. Some people have trouble remembering their own names or their children's names. My mother used to, we had, there were five boys and she used to get mad. She was, you know, she'd go through the list until she thought she hit the right one. <laughs> And so, but, but, but this man could remember everything. There was nothing limiting him. He had this incredible creative ability, which is part of that grace that God's given to us again. God knew his limits. And so the one limit God said, I have for you, and I believe it's because God knew that he had not made man to handle this, which he said, you can't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe there was a second reason for that. And this is what we're going to talk about today. This is what we forget. This is an attitude that we've slipped into that the world has, that fallen man has, and this is how the fall happened. This was a reminder to this man, a constant reminder, that although he had all of this to enjoy, all of this freedom, all of this blessing, that he owned none of it. See, Adam was the creation. The creation belongs to the creator. Authority comes from ownership. And ownership starts with the creation. When we bought my car, they gave me a key. That key is a sign of authority over that car. Well, they don't use keys anymore, just something you leave in your pocket. But it's, it gives, without it, I can't start the car. That's now mine, but I got it from the manufacturer, well, the dealer, because the manufacturer made the car, they owned the car, they had the right to start it, because it was their car, because they made it. God made this man, and by man I mean man and woman. He made him, therefore God owned him. God gave him tremendous freedom, tremendous blessing, tremendous favor, and the greatest one was the relationship 
that this man had with his creator. They walked in the cool of the evening together. They were in perfect fellowship with one another. Perfect communion together. Something you and I work at, struggle at, to experience and strive for, he walked in 24 hours a day without any interruption. Perfect union. Knew God's mind, knew God's heart, knew God's will. They knew each other without anything interfering. So I believe that's what real paradise is. It's not the stuff. It's the relationship. The stuff comes along with it, but it's the relationship, the fellowship, because man was made for this purpose. Man was made to bring, satisfy a desire and a need of God the Creator. Say, God could have a need, yes. There are some inherent needs in love. Love has to have an object to bestow that love on. And since God's nature is love, He had to have someone on whom He could bestow His blessings and His love because to be just to have love and not be able to give it to somebody frustrates somebody that walks in love. And so God had to have somebody that He could pour His love, His blessings, His generosity, all that He had out on. And that's why He created man. To know Him. To love Him. To be loved by Him. To be taken care of by Him. But that perfect man understood something. He understood that he belonged to God. He didn't belong to himself. And he didn't want to belong to himself. He wanted to belong to God because God perfectly took care of him. God took care of the knowledge of good and evil. See, all he had to do was do what God said. See, if you do what God said, is he did what God said, God knew the difference between good and evil. God can handle the difference between good and evil. So all he had to do was just follow God and he would stay out of the evil and walk in good. Everybody following that? It's like staying under an umbrella in rain. It's real simple. This is not complicated. The umbrella will take care of the rain if you stay under it. This was the way God made him. All right. So this tree is there to protect him. Boundaries are there for our protection. We have a neighbor on one side who has, let's put it this way, two large dogs. And one of them's okay because he's got loose and got in our yard once and he was very friendly. The other's a pit bull. We have a fence between our, bound, our property and our neighbor's property. Right, Joe? A few years ago, it needed to be replaced. So I go next door to tell my neighbor, I'm replacing the fence. Please keep your dog in. <laughs> and we establish where that boundary is to put that fence on. So that boundary tells my neighbor where his dog belongs and where it doesn't. Because that boundary's there and that fence is there to enforce the boundary, we can enjoy our backyard even with that dog barking on the other side of the fence. Because he's, our neighbor has respected that boundary. It's a protection for me. It's a protection from him. So boundaries which are limits are our protection when that boundary's been established by someone who knows better than we do. 
There's a courthouse. In fact, it used to be over all the, most of the courthouses in Ma- Massachusetts. I'm, I know it's not over some, most of the new ones. That says obedience to the law is freedom. What a novel thought. <laughs> obedience to the law is freedom. Why? Because the law are boundaries that are there to protect us. And as long as everybody obeys them, we're protected. It's when someone decides, I don't have to obey it, they cross a boundary, they cross a speed limit, they cross your boundary, they break into your... Whatever it is, they cross a boundary, and therefore they break the boundary or the law, and that's what causes the problem. So God establishes boundaries for our protection. By the way, parents, that's why we're to establish boundaries for our children. Their protection for them. Because children think, and some children of advanced ages think, that I can determine what's right and wrong for myself. So I don't need boundaries. Well, we're going to see what happens in a minute when you do that. All right. It's going to get very interesting here. See, I know the story. Well, we're going to look at it from a little different perspective. Verse 18, because he said, in in, in dying you shall die. So he's talking about what's going to happen is, if you eat of that tree, you're going to get separated from me. You're going to cross a boundary that I've established. And when you cross that boundary, you get outside of my presence, and therefore outside of my protection. This is right in the beginning of the book. All right, then what he says is he says, the Lord said it's, good, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him comparable. And you know the story. He, put a, had, had, he, 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 he couldn't find anything suitable among the animals and still shouldn't. And so he caused him to sleep and brought out of himself, God brought out of him that rib, which literally means side or half of him, and, and brought him to her and he says, wow. That's a loose translation. Look at verse 25. That's what I want you to see. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible to me. See, we think, first of all, in terms of bleeding clothes on. Well, let's just even talk about that. Let's just close your eyes for a moment, unless you're in charge of something. And just imagine that you're sitting here with no clothes on. Does that create feelings? Then I'd have you stand up. Why? The idea of being in public, some people even in private, with no clothes on, is is threatening. Why? Because I don't want to be exposed. It's embarrassing. It's personal. It's private. I don't want to be exposed and many of us, because we're not particularly proud of how we look without our... And that's good. Pastor Sam used to say, you know, if you've got to paint the barn, paint it. You know, if you've got to dress it up, dress it up. Keep America beautiful. And that's true. I'm not advocating a church where we don't wear clothes. I'm t- but I'm trying to make a point here. They were not conscious that they had no clothes on. I mentioned to you, imagining not wearing clothes, you're immediately conscious of what that would feel like. They had no concept of it. Why? Because they were not at all aware of themselves. And this is what I want you to see. 
They were so totally aware of God and what He's like and who He was, so focused on Him that it had not even entered their mind that they could be separated from Him. They were so much a part of God, so conscious of God, they couldn't see themselves as separated from Him. They were so much a part of Him. By the way, that's what true worship is. It's not just singing slow songs. It's not just loving God from our heart. It's seeing Him in the Spirit. That's why John 4 says, Jesus said that my Father's longing for true worshipers because true worshipers worship in spirit, in the spirit realm. Not just praying in tongues, but it is a spirit revelation of who He is because when you truly see who He is and He is a spirit, you get caught up in who He is and you lose touch with who you are. One of the ways to tell you're in the Spirit is you lose track of time. It's not, have I been praying long enough? Oh my goodness, it's only been five minutes. That's not in the Spirit. But when you've been praying, when you've been communing with God, and you're looking at, oh my goodness, did that much time pass? You had lost consciousness of yourself, and you became so conscious in here of Him. That's a taste of what they lived in so unaware of themselves. They had no concept of self. No concept of self. Say, so, well, that was that an identity crisis. No, their identity was Him. Their identity was in Him. Now, this is how God made it. And this is what paradise was. And Adam wasn't complaining that he didn't have his rights. He was so blessed, so prosperous, because God took care of everything. And God satisfied his inner longing. And if it ended here, that's where we'd all be now. But we all know there's chapter 3. So let's go into it. We're going to start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning. Isn't it an an interesting contrast between the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3? Chapter 2 ends with this man and his wife are holding nothing back. That's what that word means. They're totally exposed. Nothing's hidden. No hidden agenda. Everything's open to God and to each other. Chapter 3 starts, the serpent was more cunning. Cunning does not imply openness. It implies trickery, deceit. And what's the essence of deceit? It's what you appear to be doing. It's not what you're really doing. In other words, your motives are hidden. Your agenda is hidden. You make it look one way when in reality what you're after is something else. Look at that contrast. And we're going to see it acted out. So why are we going through all this? Because you and I are operating in one of these two, either one of these two ways. Okay. The serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He starts out by challenging her with a question. Now, there's nothing wrong with questioning things. There's nothing wrong with curiosity. 
as long as that's not questioning what God said. Because what he's after here is to change the very thing we've just discovered. They have no consciousness of themselves. They're totally conscious of God. They're blessed by Him, provided by Him, in perfect fellowship and communion with Him. And the serpent has come to break that up. We're going to see why in a minute. And so his device here, because he's cunning, what it looks like he's doing is not what he's really after. What he's really after is to create a separation of this man from his God. And the method he's going to use is to begin to get them aware of themselves as having a separate identity from their God. And that's what he's after in your life and my life. And that's the root. This is why we're going through this step. That's the root of everything that gets off track in our life. The Bible says to not be ignorant of his devices. This is his primary main device. I've told you about deceit and cunning. It's like dealing with a pickpocket. He bumps up against you here. He'll say something to you here, but he's not after how's the weather. He's not trying to find how the weather is. He's after your wallet. And we were in a place on our vacation where we were in a huge crowd of people. And when I walked through that crowd of people, I kept my hand right back here. Because we bumped into all kinds of people, but I didn't care anything about anything else. I just wanted to hang on to this wallet back here. And I knew that if there was a pickpocket there, this is what he's after. I don't care what he says to me, bumps in, because I, I knew what he was really after. So when it says to not be ignorant of his device, you grab your wallet. You need to know. But spiritually, what's your wallet? And that's what we're learning. This is what your wallet is. This is what he's after. He's after to get you conscious of yourself as separated from God, as having a separate identity from God. Because watch what happens when you do. So he starts with a question. And it sounds as if he's trying to help her. Just an innocent question. Satan has no innocent questions. Because Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, he comes only. The key word there is only. That means no other motive but to steal, to kill, or destroy. So all you've got to do is ask yourself, do I want to be stolen from, killed, or destroyed? Because if I don't, I'm not going to answer his questions. I'm not going to entertain his questions. Because his only motive is to steal, kill, or destroy, not to help me or teach me something. All right. Let's see how he works here. And the woman said to him, that's her first mistake. You don't have to answer him. You're, he never, God never told them to defend him. This is a boundary again. She's now beginning to entertain something outside of what God told them to do. Told them to be fruitful, multiply, take care of the earth that I've given you. He never said, defend me, explain me. And he's not saying it today either. So in our calling to be bait to the world, we're not called to justify, explain, or defend him. We're called to be bait. But when she answered him, she gave him a right to speak. 
Because he had no right to speak there until she gave it to him. And watch what he does with that little opening. Just that little opening. So the woman answered and said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And now how the the serpent gets bolder. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Now he's challenging God's word. For God knows, now now he's going to attack God's motive, his character. Now he's going to say, God lied to you. God's holding something, now listen to me, God's holding something back from you. Notice where the focus is. God's holding something back from you. In other words, you have rights here that God's not satisfying. Notice, He's trying to create a separation. For God knows that in the day, verse 5, in the day that God knows something, He's not telling you. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, first of all, the Bible says He made them in their image, in His image. So He already made them, but listen to me, He made them the way He wanted them to be. And when they stayed within the way He wanted them to be, they were blessed and prosperous in peace and walking in victory. They're being tempted to redesign themselves into something that they're entitled to be, but the only entitlement we have is what He gives us. So they were being tempted to create their own rights and therefore their own identity, which by definition has to be separated from Him. You following me? See, this is, where, this, is where we, this is where we were, this is what we've been brought out of, but this is what we still struggle with. So this is not just an historical study. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God knows that, you, that, that the knowledge of good and evil is something you ought to have. Because see, God had determined they couldn't handle it. The only time I ever got nervous with my, really nervous with my kids growing up as teenagers is when they said, no, that's okay, Dad, I can handle this. I've been there, I've been there, boys. I've been there, young lady, you know. <laughs> and I was your age, I thought I could handle it too. I found out I couldn't handle it. I got this one under control, Dad. Oh, yeah. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one's wife. Notice who's making these determinations. She saw that the tree was good for food. God already said it was good for food. She's making her own independent evaluation. That it was pleasant to the eyes... Ooh, this looks nice. That the tree was desirable to make one's uh, make one wise. 
she took of the fruit and ate it, and also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. Say, that sounds great, they were open, but they were open to see something they weren't designed to handle. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 being taken up into the heavenly realms and seeing things that he couldn't express. Isaiah, you can see people that have been taken up into heaven trying to describe things they can't, it's beyond what their mind could handle. That's in heaven. I've read accounts of people that went to hell and tried to do the same thing. It's beyond their mind's ability to grasp. See, the arrogancy, arrogance of of man apart from God is we think we can understand everything. If we just know more and have more knowledge. Well, we know more today and have more knowledge today than we've ever had. What's the situation in the world as a result? Is the world happier, more peaceful, more blessed? Is it a Garden of Eden? Is that what man's done to it? Oh, my goodness, no. We all know that. All right. And the eyes of both of them were open. And look at the first thing. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They found, they suddenly saw themselves. And how did they see themselves? It wasn't because suddenly their eyes opened. It was because they began to entertain thoughts about themselves. Notice how this works. It's not like... The serpent waves his hand or some magic thing over them. Oh my goodness, look at me. No, he began to get them to think about themselves. It's so important to understand that. Because the thoughts you get, every thought you get, we talked about that uh, earlier this year on Wednesday nights about renewing your mind. I'm going to talk more about that next year. About the th- every thought you get is important. Because it's intended to do something, plant some seed in you. So you need to discern where has that thought come from because it's got a motive behind it. And here we see those questions, those thoughts are already bearing the wrong fruit because she started thinking about herself. And the result is she began to act on her own behalf And that's how her eyes were opened to discover she was someone separated from God. She she could have her own identity. Oh, that sounds good. What a blessing. We need to grow up. They need to develop their own identity. We're going to see what her own identity does. You and I are struggling with it today. Because we weren't made for that purpose. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked, so it's fig leaves together. Then God comes down and says, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And God says, where are you? Because he wasn't where he normally was. And it wasn't because God didn't know. He was getting the man to identify. And he discovered that he was hiding. Now he's hiding from the presence of God instead of walking with him. Why is he hiding from him? Because he's aware of himself. He's hiding from God, and he's afraid. So now fears come in. And so God calls them out to give an account. Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And now look at the next thing. It's the woman you gave me. 
Now he's blaming, covering himself. Not just with fig leaves, but he's covering his guilt. Romans chapter 5 talks about this sin, says that, that we've sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin. His sin was he violated a direct commandment of God. He knew what he was doing. Eve, the Bible says, was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He just disobeyed God. And so he's covering up, not just physically, but he's covering up responsibility. Been doing it ever since. Now let's go quickly in the time we have left. Go with me to Isaiah 14. I want you to see what's behind this. We're going to pull the drapes back of the flesh. We're going to look at the spirit world here. That's what's going on. We're going to look at that serpent and who he really is and what he's really about. Verse 12, Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from the heavens, O Lucifer. Lucifer means day star or light. Shining of the sun of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Now stop there a second. Keep something there. And we're going to go over to Ezekiel 28. And then we'll come back here. Because I want to show you who this character was. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now, most Bible students will tell you, and you'll see why in a minute, that this is a double reference. It's talking to the king of Tyre, but it's also talking about this Lucifer. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. The king of Tyre was not perfect. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise. The guy was decked out. Emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared on the day when you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. That's what we've been talking about. You were on the holy mountain of God and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That's the angels. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. Violence against people? No, violence against God. Rebellion against God. Within, till iniquity was found in you, excuse me, and you sin. Notice it starts inside before it comes outside. And I destroyed you. And I'll show you what that means in a minute. Okay, now go back to Isaiah 14. This is who he's talking about. This is Lucifer. And what happens, of course, is he's thrown down and to the earth as punishment. The earth was never designed, excuse me, it was thrown into hell, which was the center of the earth. It was never designed for people. It was designed for Lucifer once he fell and became Satan, and he took a third of the angels with him. He got, he was so influential. See, some Bible scholars believe that he led worship in heaven because of the instruments. It talks about the timbrels and things like that. It doesn't clearly say that, but I tend to lead that way. But he was, in, he was one of God's greatest, most beautiful creations. And what happened is 
he began to look at himself instead of the God he was there to worship. Just that slight change of focus. Look what happens. Look how it began to come out of him. O Lucifer, son of the morning, verse 12, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. This is what happened. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's the other angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the note. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. Five times in there is the first pronoun, I. I will do this. I will make myself. I will be like. I will. I, against God. Whom he could see. But that self-core is so blinding that it will get you to think something's being kept from you, something's being held back from you, something is... And understand this. This is what we're coming down to. You own nothing, including yourself. Adam owned nothing, including himself. God created them. And when they walked in that relationship that God was the creator, they worshipped him, they, they obeyed him, they, their eyes were on him, they were the most, he was the most blessed man that ever walked on the earth. See, the, the, understand the kingdom of God operates on principles of the opposite that the kingdom the world operates on. And so, under, we, see, we look at this through the training we've got in this world. Oh my goodness, how, how what a terrible life. I've got to give all that up. But that's looking at it through the eyes, the filter that the world uses to evaluate what's good and bad. We've got to learn to put God's glasses on again. That's why he gave us this book. It is his glasses to help us see clearly what the kingdom of God is like and what he's like. And the foundation of that in our relationship with God is he's the creator and we're the creation. I don't own my body. I don't own my time. I I don't own anything. Because to own it is to have my own independent rights and authority over it. In other words, it's to have my own kingdom. But understand this. This is why I wanted you to look at these verses. That's not just something natural to man. That was brought in by Lucifer who became Satan because he's been kicked out of heaven for the rebellion and he he can't stop God but all he can do is take everything that God that's precious to God and try to suck it in to the same thing he's done and that's what he's about in every area of your life where he's trying to tempt you or deal with you whatever it may be whatever the temptation may be it all comes down to this it's you It's about me. The root of every sin is self. The root of every sin is me, my, and mine. A man that God had called to do 
great work, Abraham, to be the father of a whole nation of people, the one with whom God entered into a covenant with. He'd never done that with man before. A covenant by which they would be one. Everything God had would be his. He gave him a son supernaturally. We know the story. We're not going to spend the time to go back over. He supernaturally gave him a son. Abraham tried to help God out. God says, no, this is going to be something that I give you just because you believe me. And the boy grows up. He's He's the pride and joy of Abraham's life. Not only that, God has promised him that through this boy, I'm going to carry out every promise I've made you. You're going to be a father of many nations through this boy Isaac. And so Abraham's coasting along, enjoying the blessings of God. But like a natural father, this is my son. This is my pride and joy. And one day God wakes him up and says, Abram, says, here I am, Lord. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the mountain I'm going to show you. And I want you to sacrifice him to me on that mountain. And Abraham obeys God. Goes to that mountain. It's in Genesis 22. Takes him up to the top of that mountain builds a sacrifice, you know the story, and was prepared to come and plunge that knife in him. God didn't want to take that son from him, but what God wanted to do was to make sure Abraham understood that that was not his son that he owned, but that son was a gift to him from the God who had the right to say, I want him back. God has the right over everything you have and I have, including my next breath. And we're saved, we love God, but we live our life as if I have my own life that I'm living and I want God involved in it to help me. I want to know God, I want His presence. And what we're going to see next week is the reason most of us are not enjoying the fullness of it is we're not keeping our side. God keeps His side. We've put a wall up. And God works through the wall to bless us and do what He can. But we put a wall up there. We want that wall there. We want God and His blessings. God and His provision. God and His love. But I want that wall there so I can still decide what I want to do and what I don't want to do. Because the fear is if I give that up, what am I going to have left? Just God. Just Eden. Just His provision. Just His protection. See, the one that owns it is responsible for it. When they transferred title to my car to me, I'm now responsible. They're no longer responsible for it. And most of us are running around trying to be responsible for our own lives asking God to come in and help us when we need Him. And we're limiting. I think it's in Psalm 72 or 78. Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited what He could do for them. We're limiting what God can do for us because we're trying to have God's involvement but still hold on to ourselves. What I want you to see this morning is the root of that. The root of that comes from hell. And what's behind it is to separate you from the God who loves you so much and wants to bless you and prosper you and take care of you so much.